Heavenly Father, thank you for for uh, being our Lord. We, we acknowledge your greatness and, and uh, praise you and worship you and, and uh, especially we're thankful for your care over us. Um, let's see, today's Wednesday. Uh, before we meet again, next Wednesday, we'll have an election. Father, please give us good leaders. Yes, and uh, leaders who will who will bring honor to you and uh, and, uh, and provide justice. And Father, thank you that we can uh, study your word. And please um, open our eyes to understand it and make sense out of it and apply it to our lives. Amen. 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 Thank you. Amen. Okay, um, we are going to be doing a little bit of review um, from last uh, Wednesday. Um, uh, from the uh, last few verses of uh, chapter 2, then we'll dive into chapter 3. A um, bit of uh, background if you're new to us. Uh, remember that Malachi is prophesying during the time, uh, during the period between the uh, governorship of Nehemiah, the first and second, and at this point, uh, Nehemiah was back in Persia for a period of time and kind of goes to show you what human nature is like. Uh, when Nehemiah was leading the people of Judah, um, he instituted all kinds of reforms. Mm -hmm. He and Ezra both, as soon as he was done, it all went by the way of the buffalo. Um, and what is, I think, sometimes difficult for us is to uh, put all the different things, all the different um, criticisms that he has of the people of Judah, put it together, because sometimes it seems like it's separate things that are not connected. Well, they are. Uh, in one form or another, they all have to do with uh, the God of Israel and his priorities um, and the fact that he wants people to understand who he is um, and so all these things that seem to be separate are all connected to how people uh, viewed God's lordship and the fact that they were willing to submit to his priorities. So, uh, one of the things we we talked about uh, last time, I think the time before as well, um, is the uh, insistence of uh, both in Ezra and Nehemiah as well and here in Malachi that the people of Judah put away uh, their strange wives. However, we're not talking about weird women here. Uh, we're talking about... Uh, and, and this is something we need to uh, understand a bit about the uh, the different words for Gentile. Um, you have a basic word which is ger, uh, which simply means alien, not Klingon type alien, but alien from a different country. And if you recall, <coughs> Uh, the Torah was very explicit 
and laid down instructions for the people of Israel how they were to, to treat the, the Gentiles that lived among them. Um, they, uh, the, the, the laws of, for Israel were essentially the same laws that, that were expected to be kept for and by uh, the Ger, or Gerim. Um, and then you had uh, another main, main word, I won't go through all of those, but uh, another word which is Nochri, I won't ask you to pronounce it, um, also Nachar, um, and that is specifically a word that's related to someone who is a, an idol worshiper. Um, and so it's important to, to note that here um, in Malachi and Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, what the Lord is concerned about is not ethnic cleansing or ethnic purity. <coughs> what he's concerned with is spiritual cleansing, spiritual purity. Because the word that is used uh, in reference to, uh, to, to the people marrying uh, women who were not part of Judah is this word right here, Nachar. In fact, specifically, El Nachar, the god of the, uh, uh, the pagans. Uh, and so the issue that that Malachi is addressing here is is twofold. One is that uh, that, that the men of Judah married women who are idol worshippers, which was obviously problematic because you know what happened with Solomon. As he got older, he married a whole bunch of women who were idol worshippers, and what did they do? They dragged him away from the God of Israel. And so that's the concern here. The other issue uh, that we see here is that um, divorce is um, criticized, actually condemned. Now, we want to be real careful to highlight that uh, because this is not about legalism. Uh, remember that there were times when God made allowance for that. He was never thrilled with the notion that, that a couple uh, would separate. And, and by the way, the word for divorce, as Rabbi David mentioned last time, is uh, the sending, uh, shalach. Um, and, and this is not about uh, some kind of legality, uh, but the language that's used here is very explicit in describing the breach of covenant. Why is that such a big deal? The breach of covenant between husband and wife. A mistrust. And, and because the covenant is made with God, too. Because the covenant between husband and wife reflects the covenant that, that people have with God. And specifically, remember that in Scripture... Um, God's relationship with the nation of Israel is typically described as that of a husband and wife. Uh, Jeremiah 31, the, the scripture that talks about the new covenant. What does God say about the new covenant? We need to turn 
to Jeremiah 31. Hmm? In your heart. In the heart, but leading up to that, uh, Jeremiah 31, 31, 32. And Hermano, if you have it, please. <coughs> Because of all the evil, the children of Israel and the children of Judah. Jeremiah 31. Yes. 31. Um, it might be off of verse, depending on which Bible you have, it might be a first time. Well, I, I tried. That's fine. That's fine. There's patience and there's lots of chesed. Not like the covenant I made with the fathers. Why don't you back up just a few words? Behold, days are coming. Yeah. It is the declaration of Adonai. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with the fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. It is the declaration of Adonai. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. It is the declaration of Adonai. I will put my Torah within them. Yes, I will write it on their heart. I will be their God and they will be my people. Thanks. Why don't you pause there? So, uh, what, what God is saying through Jeremiah is despite the fact that the nation uh, did all kinds of things to break God's heart and to break the covenant relationship, God is so big that He's able to transcend that and the covenant relationship that God has with Israel uh, is not going away anytime soon. Thank you, God. Um, so, the, the breach between husband and wife, the, the words that are used there are very, very strong uh, to communicate not just uh, this is um, uh, irreconcilable differences, you know, a good Hollywood term, but rather treachery is the term that is used to describe uh, a husband deciding that he's had it with his Israelite or uh, Jewish wife and he's going to go after one of the daughters of the strange God, El Nechah. Um, so part of what you're seeing here in Malachi is that because the relationship with God, the holy holiness with God is off kilter, then everything else is off kilter. All the other areas in their life, uh, we spend a bunch of time talking about the sacrifices, um, and this is not something we can relate to necessarily because uh, we don't have animal sacrifices, so it's, it seems like it's a non-issue, but it really is an issue because the sacrifice, remember that the sacrifice of 3,000 years ago um, are very much reflective 
of how we relate to God. And and remember that uh, Hebrews, for example, talks about us coming to the Lord and bringing Him an offering of praise. Same kind of language. So what God is criticizing here is not just that the people were were not willing um, to bring animals, but the fact that they were bringing the leftovers, uh, same basic principle that applies to us with, uh, with our relationship with God, that we tend to give God leftovers. We talked about that. I won't uh, repeat, reiterate that so much. So part of what you're seeing here is people's perspective is screwy in lots of ways. Part of what they're saying is, God, where is your justice? Uh, not that that's not a question that all of us ask from time to time, you know, but I think as you get to know God better, you realize that the only one who has answers to why is God. I mean, we can ask, uh, we can ask why questions until we're blue in the face. The only one who really has answers to that is God, and He doesn't see fit to share answers to those why questions, uh, or rarely does so. So, uh, chapter 3 um, begins with Malachi, my messenger, which is obviously the same, the same word as uh, Malachi's name, um, and he will go before me and uh, make my path straight. Uh, now, why would God need somebody to make a straight path? And for whom? For what purpose? To prepare the people. Prepare the people. Okay, how? By bringing the message to the people that He's coming. And of course, you. Prepared you with prayer and supplication and sacrifice, the turning back to the truth. Right. It's a combination. It's not, it's not just a one, one factor, uh, but of course we have Yohanan Hamadbil, who is John the Immerser, John the Baptist. And when John was asked what his mission was, what did John say? <coughs> Speak up. Prepare the way. Prepare the way. Prepare the way. And we really don't connect with that because it's, it's a picture that doesn't make a whole lot of sense for us. Because if we want to go from, from here home, we get in a car, turn on the ignition, shift, and go. But in those days, particularly if you're a person of importance, a king or somebody else like that, you would have to have a herald going before you, clearing out the path mm -hmm. and telling all the uh, rank and file to clear the path because here comes this uh, King Tut, whoever he was. Um, and as Art was saying, it's a package deal uh, and by the way, we have seen that, uh, we have seen examples of that 
uh, in the last 20, 30 years where believers have banded together and sought God in prayer and fasting and that what followed uh, had been the outpouring of the Spirit of God and all kinds of power. So a very basic principle, and that is that God will come as He sees fit and God will come sometimes uh, despite who we are, but He certainly welcomes us when we want to welcome Him. And that's the principle of um, someone going before before God to prepare the way. Um, so, uh, to continue in, in, uh, in verse 1, um, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to His temple. Now, where was God all this time? Why does it speak about God coming to His temple? Anybody? He left the temple in Ezekiel, right? He left the temple, correct. And, and by the way, uh, just to give you some perspective, um, 1 Chronicles chapter 7, let's turn to that. 1 Chronicles chapter 7. And verses 1 and 2. Rachel, would you read that for us? I think I might have the wrong reference where you said 1st Chronicles. Yeah. Uh, excuse me, 2nd Chronicles. Uh -huh. I beg your pardon. I stand corrected. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering Okay, now, simple words, but I don't know about you, I certainly can't get my arms around that. Think of what would happen if we came to worship the Lord and our wonderful musicians and dancers were um, ministering, doing their thing, as it were, and all of a sudden the presence of God was so awesome and overwhelming that we have to stop and say, okay, God, you're here. Now think about what that would look like. And especially if you have sacrifices and fire comes down from heaven and consumes all the sacrifices. And you say, okay, we get it. The Lord's, the Lord's presence was in the first temple. Now what's interesting is that when we go to the second temple, uh, particularly in Ezra chapter 4, we don't see any of that. When, when the second temple was complete and the people of Israel, the people of Judah had uh, offerings and they celebrated, 
It was a celebration, but it says nothing about God showing up. Now, we can uh, argue and speculate till the cows come home. Obviously, God wasn't present in some form uh, because uh, the people of, of Judah um, were obedient to God and they were following the commandments. However, Scripture definitely does give us nothing of the kind of uh, glory that took place um, at that uh, on that occasion. Um, and the prophecy in Haggai said that the glory of the former house will be greater than the latter. The uh, prophecy. Let me try that again. The glory of the latter house will be greater than the former house. Well, this hadn't happened yet. And so, um, according to rabbinic tradition, um, God would show up in different ways uh, in the second temple, um, according to tradition, that whenever um, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, uh, would be complete, then there would be a um, uh, a red thread that would turn white um, in fulfillment of of Isaiah one eighteen. If your though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Uh, but the people of Israel did not know the presence of God in the temple, the second temple, as it was in the first temple. Which is why uh, you, you see Malachi saying, you guys are looking for God to show up, and He will. However, He's going to show up in ways that you're not, uh, you're not sure you really want. Uh, the Lord will, will appear suddenly... Um, and again, that's part of what God uh, exercises His sovereign um, plans to show up when and how He wants to. And I realize that's highly un-American for God to do things His way rather than our way. Um, but God will, uh, Malachi is predicting that God will appear suddenly, just like Scripture says to us that Yeshua will appear in His time. Uh, regardless of how many people come up with calendars of the precise timing for the Lord's appearance, and I think we've all lived long enough to see that and laughed at it, um, the word for the Lord here is not a common word, Adon, um, Adon literally means master. Uh, and by the way, that's the word preference, the preferred word that the believers in Israel today use when they speak about the Lord. Ha-Adon. Uh, the. Hi. Yeah. When they, say, when they speak about the Lord, so you mean they say Ha-Adon instead of saying God, or ha, uh, and, and they use it in term, instead of what term? Uh, they use it instead of we we assume that when you go from English mm -hmm. to Hebrew mm -hmm. that we, we would say the Lord yeah 
that we would typically say Adonai. Oh, okay. Well, Adonai is supposed to be <coughs> Yorivavi. Correct. Like? Correct. So, so what are they using? Ha Adon. Adon. Adon is is perhaps a uh, a touchy feely form of uh, Lord. So they use it instead of Adonai. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So, are you saying that that's the first one in this first one? Correct. Okay. That's the first first time that I that I've seen where this word Adon. Ha Adon. You're saying. Yeah. Ha Adon. Definite article. That yeah. But Adon, uh, as in, okay, there's a reason why. Again, remember that that the Lord has all kinds of names, um, and each one of the names explains to us something about who He is and how He functions, right? Yes. So we've talked about Adonai Svaot. You guys back there remember Adonai Svaot? You don't remember. Captain of the Hosts. Uh, uh, this pin, pin does not write. Adonai Svaot. This is a very common designation for God throughout the prophets. I think like 150 times. Uh, this word, this name for God is used. And it means two very closely related uh, ideas. Either uh, the Lord Almighty, uh, which is what the Greek translated it, or the captain of the hosts of heaven. And you, if you folks were not here a couple of weeks ago, we talked about what that meant. Um, one angel went out in one night, and he killed how many people? 185,000. 185,000 Assyrians who were surrounding Jerusalem. That's one angel. Uh, so you can understand when we talk about um, thousands and thousands of angels and the Lord being the captain of the hosts of the armies of heaven, we're talking about indescribable kind of power. And so, why, why do the prophets use again and again and again this name of God? As a reminder of that power. Why? So that the people will return. Uh, that oh, people would repent. You mean? Okay, there's that. Emphasis off the prophet for sure. Hmm? Emphasis off the prophet. Emphasis off the prophet. Okay. Why else would the prophets use this name again and again and again? Well, because they were still under, they were still vassals to Assyria and Babylon, right? Not at this point. Uh, the Assyrian Empire was done with uh, Babylonian sorry, Empire, the Persians. Right, the Persians. But were they vassals of the Persians? Well, it was that. Also, remember that the Judah was a fairly small chunk maybe about 50 miles east to west and about 20 miles north to south, and they were surrounded by enemies. Uh, which, which means one of two things. Either you know that God is Adonai Tzvaot, in which case you trust Him, you follow Him, you obey Him, or if you don't believe that He is Adonai Tzvaot, what are you going to do? 
You go to Egypt. You go to Egypt and you, you try to find all kinds of help other than God. Uh, either either try to use your own strength, your own wisdom such as it is, or else go to other people to get help. Or in, in either case, uh, what you do is you operate under fear rather than faith. However, if you know, really know and understand that he is Adonai Tzvaot, that he is the Lord of hosts, your approach to life and your approach to circumstances, your approach to trauma, all of that is going to be radically different. Why? Because you know who is in control. So the prophets, when they're challenging the people over and over and over and over again, repent. Uh, you're being stupid. You need to come back to the Lord. You need to do what He tells you. You need to walk in His ways. Then part of the challenge for them is, this is what God says, Adonai Tzvaot. We're not talking about some petty deity here. We're talking about Adonai Tzvaot. Um, but in this case, um, the name that's used of God is Adon simply as a reminder to the people that he is the master, he is the boss. Um, so, what, what, uh, what Malachi is saying is God will come uh, and you are seeking him, but why are you seeking him? Why is it that people reach out to God? Because they're desperate. They feel there's no way it's going to work with people. Well, there's that on the positive side. On the negative side is the attitude that I need something and God is going to give it to me. And God will give it to me just like I ask Him to. And so... Part of the message here is God will come, He will show up, um, but will you be able to stand who He is and what He is about? Because He will upset your apple cart and He will say, uh, Hello, I am Ha'adon, not you. Um, and here in this situation, the major issue for, for the people to realize, yes, God is going to show up, but He is not going to show up touchy-feely-like. He's going to show up and He is going to judge. Now, this is real uh, strong and uncomfortable language. You know, none of us really want to hear God saying to us, uh, I love you and I'm going to put you through a bunch of fire to refine you. Um, I don't know about you, I, I'm not exactly thrilled about that. Um, but uh, we're told in Scripture, later in Scripture, particularly in Peter, First uh, uh, Peter 1, 6 and 7, that the trials that God allows us to go through prove, validate our faith, which is tried like a goldsmith would take gold and heat it up, and then when when the scum, the impurities flow to the surface, 
He will come and remove the scum and purify it. Now, none of that is real comfortable kind of language. Uh, but that's, that's what... That's the, the language that Malachi is using here. Um, God will come about and, and bring his refining um, like, like gold and like silver um, and particularly the sons of Levi in verse 3 of Malachi here why is that so crucial that the sons of Levi would be purified That's who we started all talking to in one, one sense, but obviously it's kind of where things start with the relationship with him, with his priests. Why? That's how we set it up. The priesthood. Okay, why Why does he start with, with the priests? Well, they're the ones who are supposed to teach the people. Sorry? They're the ones who are supposed to teach the people. They're supposed to teach the people. They're to be intermediaries yeah. between mediators between God and people and what happens if the priests are in the wrong place what happens then to how God and the 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 nation relate to one another it nullifies the effect of the sacrifice whatever it is you have a basic breakdown in God's relationship with the people but it's also part of God's order as we see in first Peter 4 that Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Correct. And remember that throughout Scripture, both here and also in James, remember, not many of you should be teachers uh, because you will incur a greater judgment. This is not to discourage people from wanting to serve God. In fact, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, we're told that you should desire the greater gift. However, knowing that, like Yeshua said, to whom much is given, much is required. You're given greater authority, greater, with the greater authority comes greater responsibility. And if the priests are out of whack, what's going to happen with the nation? It's going to ripple down to the nation and to the people and to the strangers all the way across the board. Yes, and remember that Israel, in Exodus chapter 19, God called Israel to be a nation of priests, which means that the nation of Israel were to function as, as um, light and darkness for, for the pagan nations. Um, same basic principle that applies to us today. If believers, uh, we've been called, 1 Peter chapter 2, we've been told that uh, we are called to be a, a nation of priests in other words, we are to represent God to a, to a broken humanity. And if we are out of whack, how will, God, how will people experience the presence of God if we're not in order? Which is why so much attention in Malachi is given to the problems, the breakdown between God and the priests. I have a question. Yes, ma'am. I'm not sure what tin I'm opening. Um, do you think, or if it's appropriate to answer this, do you think that as the, in a sense, the uh, Jewish people being the older brother, as it were, right? That the Lord, when he returns, Yeshua, when he returns, he's first going to be cleansing house there. 
quite likely. Um, restoration is... What was the question? I couldn't hear. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Um, when uh, Yeshua returns, since, uh, you know, he's the ones who are, since the, um, the Jewish people were the ones who entrusted with the word, is he going to first cleanse house there before he comes for other believers to cleanse house? And the answer is definitely, I'm sorry, let me rephrase what I uh, just spoke a moment, a moment ago. The answer is definitely yes. In, in Romans chapter 11, uh, Paul speaks about what will happen if the nation of Israel is restored to God and embraces Yeshua as Messiah. In, in chapter 11, Paul says that this will be like life from the dead for the other nations. And this is a, a basic principle. What God does with Israel always has to impact the other nations. Why? Because that's, that was God's plan. That he, that's why he um, called the people of Israel into being. A, because of his love for the people of Israel, but much more so uh, because he wanted to use the people as, as intermediaries to bring, uh, bring the light to, to the nations. And, and Paul says that this has already happened in many ways. We have scripture through Israel. We have Messiah through Israel. And as we understand the prophetic passages in scripture, that's going to come into fullness uh, in places such as Isaiah chapter 2, uh, where the Lord says that, uh, that the Torah will come forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and nations will stream to Jerusalem. Now, again, realize that Jerusalem is just a piece of real estate if you remove God out of the picture, it's just a piece of real estate. But because uh, because God says, I will put my name on this city, then that's what makes it special. Uh, so yes to all that yes. Um, now, part of what we see in, in chapter 3 then um, is that God wants to set the sacrifices in order uh, that the sacrifices will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by. And verse 5, So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against the sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, and all those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and fatherless, who deprive aliens, again, remember the word gare uh, of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Um, now, we, I think because of a, uh, um, a popularization or, or a misconception we have this notion that the Lord's coming uh, is going to be whoopee, uh, God is coming, He's going to beam us up, and He's going to leave a mess down here. Now, we're not going to delve into pre, post, pan, and all of that. The point is, uh, what we do need to extract from Scripture is that uh, the Lord's coming in one form or another, is going to involve judgment. Um, 
יום אדוני, אדוני. Judge, and because you're a holy God, 
I want holiness to be part of who I am. And where things are not holy, then by all means come and do house cleaning. And remember earlier, we talked about uh, the difference between a couple of words, uh, kadosh and halal or chilul. Kadosh means uh, something that is set apart, that is unique, belongs to God. Chilul, I don't know if you can see it, I'll write it in big, big purple letters. Chilul um, means what is common or profane, which means that it's not like God. That our life cannot be just plain, ordinary, like everybody else, we are kadosh, we're set apart, we belong to God. And so our life has to reflect that. Um, and, and now he really gets personal, and it's hard to believe that in, in Malachi's time you had all this garbage going on. Um, sorcerers and... and um, Let's see, what else is there? Adulterers. Sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, uh, extortioners, uh, those who oppress the widows and fatherless and deprive aliens of justice, etc. No, by the way, um, in a sense, sin is sin. However, God reserves special judgment for the last part. For those who are oppressed, the underdog, what is God's perspective? If you were here last Shabbat, Exodus 22. Exodus 22, Connie. Turn to it, please, dear. Oh, you want me? Yeah, <laughs> most assuredly. Exodus oh, 22. You, you wanted me to remember it. Well, that too, but I'll take what I can get. Exodus 22, verse 20 to... 23. Okay, verse 23. Verse 20 to 23. Okay. You must not exploit or oppress an outsider for you were outsiders in the land of Egypt. You must not mistreat any widow or orphan. If you mistreat them in any way, and they cry out, cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. My wrath will burn hot, and I will kill you with the sword. So your wives will become widows, and your children will become orphans. Now you want to say, God, why don't you tell us how you really feel? <laughs> um, so we don't always see that taking shape on as far as facts on the ground go but based on what we see here and elsewhere in scripture those who oppress the underdogs God reserves special wrath for them why? they didn't have the ability to defend themselves they were the 
easiest to marginalize. They were the ones like the Amalekites that the Amalekites could attack because they uh, were in the back, right? And they were defenseless, and they're easy pickings. And what did God say about the Amalekites? He will destroy them generation to generation. Yes, but how will he destroy them? With the sword. He will destroy them thoroughly. I will totally wipe out. He'll wipe out their remembrance. Huh? He'll wipe out their remembrance. And he did. It doesn't get any stronger than kill. Uh, it's, it's designed to communicate the fact that when God is done with Amalek, that there will be nothing left of them. And that's the case. Um, I don't think any of us have heard of Amalek recently other than a very bad connotation always having to do with hostility towards Israel. Um, so yes, God is especially opposed to those who take advantage of the underdog. And by the way, uh, a godless society, one of the forms of a godless society is how they treat the underdogs. Oh, the helpless. Hmm? Oh, the helpless. Uh, yes. The weakest among them. The, the weakest among them, correct. And so what the Lord is saying uh, is that this especially indicates that they lack the fear of God, which was exactly what we saw in reference to, to Amalek in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Um, and the concluding part here in verse, verse 6 here um, packs quite a punch and um, 